Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to listen to a message recorded at Strasburg Community Church. We hope this message by Senior Pastor Steve Yon draws you into a deeper knowledge and understanding of who Jesus Christ is and that it cultivates a better relationship with Him. Now, let's get on to this week's message. On the, the first campaign of Napoleon, he was just a 27-year-old punk, and he had just been made a general. And uh, let's see, there we go. He'd just been made a general, and uh, he was put in charge of the Italian campaign. Um, the French were going in, and they were trying to take over some of the, the Italian states. Italy wasn't Italy at that time. It was just a bunch of city-states. One of them was Piedmont, and then he was trying to make his way eventually to Milan. Now, the man he was going up against was uh, General Johann Peter, uh, the Baron of Bilieux. And uh, uh, Bellieu was seven years old. He had been generaling his whole life. He had so much experience behind him. And now you've got this young punk upstart. And he's, he, he's put in charge of these four other generals who are much older than him. But this was his shot to prove himself. Now, the thing about Napoleon is he loved war. He loved everything about war. He loved to study war. And he spent hours and hours and hours not just studying different battles, but he studied this guy. He studied Bill Yo. And what he discovered about him is that he was kind of set in his ways. He was not a fast mover. Any decision he made, he had to think of all the different sides before he decided to move his troops. So Napoleon thought, well, if I move fast, I'll catch him off guard. If I catch him off guard, I can get victory. And that's what he did. He got his army, did a forced march, and confronted, confronted uh, Bellio before he's, his troops were ready. He confronted him in Piedmont, had a huge victory there. And again, Napoleon only had 40,000 troops against 60,000, uh, the enemy. He still chased them out of Piedmont, took the Piedmont army out of it. Now, to get to Milan, there was one more obstacle, and that was the River Po. He had to get across that river. And he knew, because he had studied Bilyeu, he knew that, uh, by the way, I recognize that every time I say his name, I pronounce it differently. I just don't know how to say it right. So he knew that, that uh, Bilyeu would be waiting at this main bridge. So he kind of set up a ruse. It's a little tricky. He sent some of his troops there to make the general think that's where he was going. While he took the bulk of his troops, went 30 miles upriver and crossed there. So before Bilyeu knew it, in comes the rest of Napoleon's army, chases him off, and Napoleon walks into Milan without any shots fired in the city. See, he knew the one key rule for battle, and that is know your enemy. And he studied his enemy, and he knew what would work against his enemy. This is Timothy, or Paul's lesson to Timothy in our passage today. He's saying we have got an enemy, and we need to know who we are fighting against. He's saying there's false teachers were coming into the church of Ephesus. He's warning Timothy, these false teachers are coming in, but you need to know these teachers are not the enemy. They may feel like they are, they may look like they are, but they are not the ultimate enemy. These are just puppets. These are just spokesmen for the true enemy. The true enemy is much more powerful. 
the true enemy is much more sinister. And as we look at the various belief systems around us, the various religions that people hold on to, a lot of times it's easy for us to, to look at these people as our enemies, our, you know, the ones that we, we theologically battle against. They aren't our enemies. Our enemy is much more powerful. Our enemy is much more sinister. And we need to remember that when we come across people who believe differently than we do, we have to be sure that we don't come at them with our dukes up ready to fight. Because again, they are not our enemy. They've just been deceived by the enemy. So when we approach them, how do we approach them? Instead, rather than our dukes up, we approach them with our arms open. We approach them with love. We approach them with compassion. Many of these people, they've been raised in it. They don't know any different than just what they've been taught. So we have compassion on them, and we approach them with love. Let's take a look at our passage today and see who the true enemy is. What Paul says, it's 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to look at 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul's writing to Timothy, who, again, is at the church of Ephesus. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. He's talking about these bad teachers that are coming in, and the first thing that we see is that bad teaching comes from bad teachers. He says, in later times, you're going to get these bad teachers coming in, and they are going to give you bad teaching. Now, it was happening at that time that he was writing, and it's something that was going to continue to happen, and it's something that still happens today. We find it everywhere. We find it in other belief systems. We find it in the Christian church. Bad teaching all around. And what we discover is that these bad teachers, they teach bad teaching because, well, they're bad people. The bad teachers are bad people. So what he says here, they, they're teaching out of insincerity. They're liars. Their consciences are, are seared. Now, did they start out that way? Well, probably not. But over time, they got so steeped into the lie that they couldn't tell the lie from the truth anymore. It says their consciences are seared. You know what happens when you get a scar and it sears? It's painful at first, but pretty soon it just deadens. You know, there's no, even, no nerve endings that are working anymore. Because that's what happens to their consciences. It just doesn't work anymore. They can't tell the truth from the lie. So they come in pretending to be sincere, but they're just looking to deceive. They've got their own motives. And we find that again today at so many places in the Christian church. We find this in so many of the, 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 the pastors who are caught up in the prosperity gospel and word of faith movement. You got to find that folks like, like you know, Benny Hinn or, or Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland, I mean, a guy who's out for his own, his own gain. 
a guy who can't even fly commercial because there's too many sinners on the commercial. And how in the world are you going to preach to a bunch of people about God if you've just been with a whole bunch of, of sinners trapped on a plane? So what do you have to do? You get your own plane. Okay, you know, if that logic works for you. But you see these people who are out for their own gain. And be, they teach a lie to draw people in. The bad teachers are bad people, and they are teaching bad theology. The bad theology we see here in Ephesus is a faith plus gospel. A faith plus gospel. Salvation by faith, by grace through faith, and. And anytime there's an and added on, well, that's when it's no longer the gospel. And what these teachers were coming in, some of them were the Judaizers, the ones who were saying that there needs to be law also. It's not just okay to be saved by grace, but you also follow the, the Jewish law. But we see there's another group that's come in. And this is a group that was teaching more of an ascetic lifestyle. They were coming in saying, hey, you guys, just to keep yourself pure and holy, don't get married. Don't get married and don't eat any of the forbidden foods. And Paul's saying, come on. Is that what the gospel is? Anytime you add anything else to the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. Anytime you say that you have to believe and do something else, it's no longer the pure, simple gospel. I mean, this whole thing about you shouldn't get married. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever even mention or come close to mentioning you should not get married. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. God created marriage. As far as all the, the, uh, uh, the different foods and everything, that was taken care of by Peter when Peter was up there on that, that, uh, uh, that rooftop and the, the blanket comes down and God says, hey, the stuff that I've made is clean, okay? That's old covenant. Don't worry about that. Everything is open for you. So the bad uh, teachers are teaching bad theology, but ultimately what it comes down to is where does this bad theology come from? Well, bad theology comes from really bad sources. And that's what he communicates in verse 1, where he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. This is all spiritual warfare. Any other belief system you come across did not come from some guy sitting there and thinking, you know, I want to come up with my own belief system. And he creates this whole fancy belief system. It came from someone whispering in his ear. Saying, hey, you want to get popular? Hey, you want to get a following? Hey, maybe you can start teaching this. Or maybe you can say you saw this. Or you experience this, and that's why people should follow you. See, look at the source. The source of these teachings, it's not the people themselves. They've just been deceived. They've been duped. If we're looking for the source of the teaching, well, we find it in John 8, 44. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Who is our ultimate enemy? 
Exactly. The devil, Satan. He is our ultimate. In fact, we know this just by his name. What's his name? Satan. You know, that's not even really a name. That's a title. That's a title. If you, if you go into the, uh, uh, the Hebrew back in the Old Testament, when you find his name, it's Hasatan. The first part there, Ha, it's just a, a definite article. It's the. So he is always referred to as the Satan. What does Satan mean? You see here, Satan means adversary. We talk about Satan, we're just given his title. He is the adversary. He is the one who is the enemy. So all deceit comes from him. All the bad teaching comes from him. He is the source, and he is powerful. But we know that the one in us is greater than him. So we know that with his power, what we've been talking about, what we're singing about, the victories that we have, we have victories in Jesus because he is the one who is more powerful. But without him, if we go battling against him, we are going to fall every time. And that's what we see all around us. So many people have been duped by the devil, duped by Satan, and they believe the lies that they have been taught. And that's why we as Christians need to approach them not as enemies because they've been deceived. We approach them with compassion, with love. I'm going to do something uh, uh, I don't do very often. From here on out, the sermon is going to be a rerun. 100% rerun, except for the slides. I'm going back to 2017, and I think it's pretty safe to go back to 2017 because I myself can't even remember what I had for dinner back on Thursday. So I'm thinking, most of you guys don't remember everything we talked about two and a half years ago. But what I want to go to is to spend a little time talking about some of these belief systems that people have been caught up in, some of the lies that they've been deceived by. Because when we understand the lies that they're caught up in, well, we know better how to approach them and we can also approach them with compassion because we can understand the lie that they are, that they are believing in. So we're going to go through six uh, belief systems in pretty rapid succession. Try and stay with me here. The first one we're going to deal with is Islam. And we're going to take this from a salvation perspective. What is salvation in these different beliefs? And what you'll find is every belief system other than Christianity is a faith plus system. It's all a works system. Every other belief system. Only in Christianity will you find uh, salvation by faith, by trusting what someone else has done rather than in what you do yourself. In Islam, the way to salvation is by performing the five pillars of faith. The first is you say the shahada. The shahada is uh, you believe that, uh, or you say that uh, uh, Allah is the only God and Muhammad is his messenger. That's an affirmation that you say many times throughout the day. So it's by repeating that shahada. You also perform the five daily prayers that go throughout the day. Uh, the third pillar is you fast through the month of Ramadan. Now, fasting is from sunup to sundown. After sundown, well, you know, it's party central. But from sunup to sundown, there's no food that's eaten, eaten uh, as a way of showing your devotion to God. The fourth one is, uh, oh, those are a different order. The fourth one is charity or alms 
And the fifth one is a pilgrimage to Mecca, if possible. It's not possible right now because the coronavirus has shut down Mecca. Um, but if you can get there, then uh, you go there, and that helps to ensure that you're going to get up into heaven. But even then, even then, you don't know for sure whether you'll make it in. Muhammad wasn't even sure if he was going to make it in. In the Quran, in uh, uh, Surah 46, uh, Surah is just a chapter, and uh, um, did I go too far there? Oh, I didn't have it included. Sorry about that. Um, in Surah 46, verse 9, he says, I am no new thing among the messengers of Allah, nor know I what will be done with me or with you. I do but follow what is inspired in me, and I am but a plain warner. Listen to his words there. He says, I do not know what will be done with me or with you. So what he's saying is, I think I'm okay, but I still don't know for sure. Even Muhammad didn't know if he had done enough to be allowed into heaven. That's what happens with a works-based uh, belief system. You never know. Have you reached that threshold? And if you do something wrong, does it bump you off? You know, are you on the bubble there, and then you, you, you get you know, bumped off of the bubble? What's the only way to ensure, as a Muslim, that you will get into heaven? Exactly, jihad. Jihad. You kill yourself and you kill others in the name of jihad, in the name of Allah, and you are ensured a place in heaven. A works-based system. Next one is Buddhism. I want to split Buddhism into two different uh, parts. The first one is Theravada Buddhism. And Theravada Buddhism uh, says that existence is suffering. That's just the nature of existence. To exist is to suffer. And suffer is caused by desire. So how do you end suffering? You end desire, exactly. So if you can finally get rid of the desires in yourself, you won't suffer anymore. Hey, pretty good deal. So you follow the eightfold path to end desire. And the Eightfold Path is just eight different things that you strive to emulate in your lives. Um, morality, meditation, wisdom are the main categories that get you there. Ultimately, though, you in Buddhism, you are your own savior. There's no other savior. There's no one else who is going to save you. You can only do it yourself because salvation comes from within inside of you. Uh, the Dhammapada 160 says, oneself indeed is one Savior. For what other Savior could there be? With oneself well-controlled, one obtains a Savior difficult to find. If oneself well-controlled, in other words, when you control your desires, what happens? No more suffering. No more suffering, that's when you reach nirvana. You reach heaven on earth. So you are your own uh, savior. Again, salvation is on this earth. There's no afterlife. There's only heaven here on earth. When you can reach that enlightened state where you're no longer suffering, you cease to exist at death. Now, some of the Buddhists, they came to a point where they said, you know, this is really kind of a self-focused belief system, and we kind of want to focus out. You know, to their credit, they just didn't want it to be all about them. So they started a new school, and this is Mahayana Buddhism. And they add a step. 
And this step is that after death, if you've lived the right kind of life here on earth and you've, uh, you've uh, achieved nirvana, you can become what's known as a bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva is an enlightened celestial being. And he postpones his extinction in the state of nirvana in order to, to help others pertain, uh, obtain perfection. So in other words, the ultimate blessing is just extinction because you don't have to suffer anymore. But there's some other-minded uh, Buddhists who say, I want to help other people find nirvana also. So when I die, I can find a way that I can postpone my extinction so that I can help other people find nirvana themselves. So, see, there's that other-centeredness that made a lot of the Buddhists feel better. The Garland Sutra said, I vow to protect all sentient beings and never abandon them because I have set my mind on enlightenment in order to liberate all sentient beings. Again, that's just all living things uh, that have a mind. All sentient beings, I do not seek the unexcelled way for my own sake. So I'm not doing Buddhism. I'm not seeking nirvana just for myself. I want to achieve nirvana so that I can become a bodhisattva so that I can help other people out. They look at the Theravada Buddhists as being very selfish because they're just focused on themselves. Now there's a very popular Mahayana Buddhist. That's the Dalai Lama. He doesn't come from a pure Mahayana school, but uh, he would be more of a Mahayana, um, Mahayana Buddhist. He is considered by many as a reincarnation of the Avalok, I messed up this word, Avalokitsvara. And the Avalokitsvara is a, a Tibetan bodhisattva, someone who reached that celestial state, uh, a bodhisattva of compassion. And what happens is this, this uh, Avalokitsvara, every time a Dalai Lama dies, that, that uh, um, bodhisattva enters into a new child, is reincarnated, and he spends his life helping others. That's what the Dalai Lama is all about. He is supposedly this other god. Well, one who's, that's where it gets messy with Buddhism. Because it sure seems like a god, but they'll say not a god, but kind of a god, maybe a god, we don't know. But either way, there is no afterlife ultimately. Salvation is just here when you achieve that state of nirvana. But again, what is it? It's all works-based. All what I can achieve. The same is true when we find when we get to Hinduism. In Hinduism, we are separated from the great Brahman, which is the ultimate supreme being. Surrounding this earth is a force, an impersonal God force. No mind to it or anything. It's just this force. And using the word force is very appropriate because if you're a fan of Star Wars, that is the force. The force is just this great impersonal a uh, force out there that people can draw strength from, good or bad. The Brahman is the force that is around the world. And what happens with us is we come down out of this force and we forget what we once were. And our whole goal is through successive reincarnations is to ultimately become one with that impersonal force again. Salvation will re reincarnate learning more and more about ourselves in reality with each ensuing incarnation. So when we incarnate, we hopefully go up a step. You know, maybe we first come here as a cat or a dog or a rat, but if you live as a good cat, dog, or rat, you get promoted. 
and eventually become a person. And if you live as a good person, when you come back again, you can get bumped up to a better person, a better situation, a better position, a better caste within, uh, if, you, if you're going through this in India. Now, if you're a bad person, you get demoted, and you got to start that whole process up again. But ultimately, the goal is to reunite with Brahman, reunite with that God force. The Mundaka Upanishad says, as rivers flow into the sea, and in so doing lose name and form, so even the wise man, freed from name and form, attains the supreme being, the self-luminous, the infinite. He who knows Brahman becomes Brahman. So once you understand the true nature of this impersonal force, and you have lived that right kind of life, you are absorbed back into that impersonal force. You become one with them. You are the drop of water that returns to the ocean and just becomes mixed in with the rest there. Doesn't sound all that fun. I'd hope for a lot more excitement in my eternity. But again, it's all works-based. That's what brings us to Mormonism. Mormonism is all works-based. Now, they say that salvation is by faith, but the problem is, they say, yeah, it is by faith, but there's more to it. It's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus' work on the cross, but you also have to do the works along with it. In uh, 2 Nephi, chapter 25 from the Book of Mormon, it says, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also to our brethren, to believe in Christ and be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace we are saved after all we can do. By grace we are saved after all we can do. It starts out and it has that wonderful ring of Ephesians, right? It's by grace we've been saved, through faith. It's not ourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. So it starts out well. We are saved by grace, but then they add an after all we can do. Anytime you add anything to that grace, it suddenly becomes works. What are the works? Within Mormonism, the works that you're baptized in the church, you continually repent, you agree with the Mormon prophets, you receive the ordinances, the baptism, uh, baptism for the dead, eternal marriage, you live that righteous life. And if you do that well enough, then you will progress up in the, uh, in the levels of heaven. There's three levels of heaven. I came up with this, or found this graphic. Now it's a little bit hard to read. This was from uh, a man named Leonidas Devon Meacham. He was a priest, a uh, member of the Quorums of the Seventy. So this is, this is not some uh, uh, anti-Mormon group that put this out. This is from uh, this guy who was one of the priests of Mormonism. And there's three different ways, he said, that, that you can go when you leave this earth. One is that low way. And the low way, you find the dishonest, liars, sorcerers, adulter adulterers, and um, not bad people, or very bad people. And you end up in this detour, a thousand years in hell. You spend a thousand years in hell, then you break free, and you get to go to the telestial kingdom. Now, the telestial kingdom, it's still heaven. It's just kind of the low-rent district of heaven. It's not that great. It's the other side of the tracks. Uh, but, hey, it's better than the thousand years where you just spent. So, you have the telestial kingdom. Now, the Broadway, that next one, that's the way most people go. 
and most good people, because most people are basically good. And if you're basically good, you know, you, you, will, you will make it to the terrestrial kingdom. That's for those who aren't Mormons, uh, those who are Mormons but aren't really good Mormons. They don't follow all the, the rules that you're supposed to follow. They end up on the terrestrial kingdom. Terrestrial kingdom, it's awesome. It's heaven. It's heaven here on this earth, and it's a really good place. So everybody, just about everybody, ends up in the good heaven. But there's one more level of heaven. The third level of heaven is the celestial kingdom, the celestial heaven. And even there, there's three levels. And the top level, the top level is the one for those really good Mormons where you will receive your own planet. You will become God. Lorenzo Snow, the fifth president of the LDS Church, made that famous statement, as man now is, God once was, as God is, man may be. In other words, Heavenly Father, our God, was just a person like us on another planet and another solar system. But he lived such a faithful life to his Heavenly Father that he was deemed by the Great Council to be given his own planet that he could be the Heavenly Father of. But it's all based, again, on how good you are. It's a works salvation. Jehovah's Witnesses, the last one we'll deal with. Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, uh, uh, again, it's a works-based salvation couched in salvation by grace. In their, um, their translation, if you ever come across a New World translation of the Bible, run away from it. Just about every translation is great, except the New World translation, which is their personal translation that they've put out, where they just change word here and there in order to fit their beliefs. In Acts 16.31, says they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus. Do I have it up there? Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will get saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will get saved. What's it supposed to say? You will be saved. Now, admittedly, it's a, a future verb. You will be saved. But what it's saying is that when you believe, then at that point, you will receive that salvation. You believe, you will receive salvation. They change it to get. Get doesn't fit. It's not a good translation of that word. But they change it to get to set it off there in the future. It's not just something right at belief, but eventually you will get salvation if you do the things that you're supposed to do. In the Watchtower, which is their official uh, periodical, it says, belief involves taking in an accurate knowledge of God's purposes and his way of salvation. Then faith has to be exercised in Jesus Christ as the chief agent of salvation. This places the Christian in a saved condition. Now, if we stop right there, I'm all for them. Fantastic. That's awesome. You believe, you understand, and you believe, and you are saved. The problem is they add that extra word there, that word, but. In other words, yeah, you will be saved, but, guys, there's a little bit more there, okay? There's the rest of the story. And the rest of the story says, but he must now persevere in doing God's will and continue to adhere to all of God's requirements for the rest of his life. Only then 
will he be saved to eternal life. So when you believe, you are saved, but it's kind of a probationary salvation. You aren't really saved. You're kind of saved. You're in that saved process. But then after you do all the works from that point on, that is when you will truly become saved. Again, it's all about faith plus. It's all about works. In uh, the book Reason from the Scriptures, also tells us that, you know, of course, that we're not going to base it on Jesus Christ and what he did, the salvation on Jesus Christ and what he did, because Jesus is not God. In fact, if you remember from way back when, can you tell me who is Jesus? No, that's, yeah, you find that that's, that's Mormon. Yeah, we talked about that on uh, uh, Thursday morning, yeah. But, no, Jesus is actually Michael the archangel. Um, I apologize, I should have had an ellipsis in there uh, somewhere, but uh, from their book, uh, Reasoning from the Scriptures, again, this is one of the official publications, says that reasonably, based on our understanding of the Old Testament, reasonably in, uh, then the archangel Michael is Jesus Christ. The evidence indicates that the Son of God was known as Michael before he came to earth and is known also by that name since his return to heaven where he resides as the glorified spirit son of God. And a lot of it comes from this whole idea of the angel of the Lord that we read about in the Old Testament. It says that Jesus isn't God, he's just an angel. And in his time here on earth, when the angel took on flesh, he became Jesus. After his death, well, then he reverted back to being the angel Michael. Heaven and uh, for Jehovah's Witnesses reserved the 144,000 that John speaks of in Revelation 7. A horrible misinterpretation of that. The problem is that the 144,000, the door shut on that back in 1935. So if you're a Jehovah's Witness since that point, kind of stinks to be you. But what they realized is that a closed door on, on 144,000 is not a good selling point for to bring in new Jehovah's Witnesses. So in 2007, what they did is they kind of opened the door a crack and said, you know, we got some JWs here. They're good, but they aren't all that great. They're kind of on the bubble there. We may boat them off the island. So if you are still really good, there may be a place for you after all. Now, even if you don't make it up into heaven, the... The, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses that aren't part of the 144,000 after the Battle of Armageddon, they will spend the rest of eternity here on earth. While everyone else is destroyed, at least they will still survive and they will have that eternity, just not up in heaven. A works-based salvation. Only in Christianity do you find salvation by faith, by grace through faith. Only there do you find it based on someone else did. Salvation is based not on our works, but on Jesus' work on the cross. We don't have to prove ourselves worthy of God's love because he has sacrificially proven himself worthy of our love. Our assurance is based on his faithfulness to us, not on our faithfulness to him. Because of what he's done for us, that's where the works come in. Because of his grace and his love for us, what are we going to do in return except just say, Lord, I just want to serve you. That's where the works come in. It's post-salvation. We are saved by grace.
through faith, not of ourselves, the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's where our hope is. And if you are here today and you are trying to earn that salvation, if you're not sure of your salvation, you can be sure. You don't have to wonder, have I done enough? You have to wonder, am I on, you know, the, the scales tipping in my favor? It's all based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we receive that, that gift of salvation just by believing in Him and giving ourselves to Him, making Him our Savior and our Lord. And God, we are so thankful for the peace that we can have based on what you've done for us. We can never, we can never have peace based on what we do. Because we can never do enough and we will always muck it up. But you are our perfect God who became our perfect Savior. And you laid out that perfect plan of salvation, giving us an assurance of an eternity with you when we receive you as our Savior and we commit to you to being our Lord. Thank you for that hope. And Lord, help us as we look at those who believe differently than we do. Let us not look at them as our adversaries. We have only one adversary and then all of his minions with him. All these others there, but by the grace of God, so Let us approach them with love, with open arms, with compassion, praying, Lord, that through us, you can show them truth. We are here to be used by you. We pray in the Savior's name. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed the message. You'll find more messages online by clicking the sermons link at strasburgcommunitychurch.com. You can also take this and other messages with you on the go by downloading our mobile app, available at both Apple and Android app stores, by simply searching for Strasburg Community Church. Also, don't forget to like us on Facebook. If you live nearby or are ever in the area, we'd love to have you stop by and visit us sometime on a Sunday morning. Services happen every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. And we're located at 56155 Sunset Avenue in Strasburg, Colorado. Once again, thanks for listening. Be blessed and have a great day.